0: To remind us of, our, of the context of our Bible passage today, Paul has been in Jerusalem where a mob tried to kill him as he went into the temple. Today, we're going to read from Acts chapter 23, and we'll read verses 12 and 14 there. And while you're looking that up, I'll just tell you that when then we're going to go and move to verse 23 of the same chapter, And at this point, the Roman commander has heard of the plot to kill Paul. And we will pick up his actions at verse 23 and read through to the end of chapter 24. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Verse 23. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Assisius, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation about their law but there was no charge against him that deserved death Or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go. They delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Lycissia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace.
1: Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots amongst the Jews and all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue, or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But these are some Jews, but there are Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Fetus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for reading. Uh, Morning, everyone. Let me have my uh, welcome. So here we are in uh, Acts 24 is where we're spending our time uh, this morning. Uh, if you like your uh, courtroom dramas, uh, uh, Acts 21 to 28, it's, it's your bit of the Bible, because uh, we're in court five different times. Let's pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, in your wisdom, you recorded in the scriptures exactly what we need, and you speak it to us today. So Father, help us, help us this morning. Would we don't really understand rightly what's going on with Paul being on trial again, and what it means for us today. Teach us, Father, shape us to be your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amongst other news, you may have missed, uh, but for the last few months, the Scottish government, quite apart from uh, shutting the pubs, has uh, been trying to push through one piece of legislation, the hate crime and public order bill. And uh, the logic of it is that any Uh, words that have the potential to stir up hatred become criminalized. The slightly worrying element of it is that intent is irrelevant. So it doesn't matter what you intend to do in your speech. If someone perceives it as being hateful, uh, you can be criminalized for that. Uh, And so it's quite controversial, and lots of people oppose it. So the National Secular Society oppose it. The Humanist Society of Scotland oppose it. All the churches oppose it. Every stand-up comedian opposes it um, because you're going to be in a bit of trouble if you're putting together a spitting image uh, or something similar at the moment. Uh, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm intending to make people laugh. We don't care. We, we, you know, you can see why it's a bit of a threat to free speech. But on it goes. One group that does apparently support it uh, is Atheist Scotland. So I was reading this week that uh, their convener. Ian Stewart said there is great merit in this bill, quote, as it would enable the prosecution of all Scotland's religions and all their holy books for spreading hatred. Oh. He said further, we fully intend to monitor all holy books and social media accounts of various religions and report Any hatred to the police for criminal investigation? Wow. Who needs the Stasi? Who needs the KGB? You've got Atheist Scotland monitoring everything. Or they did, one phrase anyway, slightly make me smile. We fully intend to monitor all holy books, which has had slightly a picture of me just going, I'm watching you. (laughs) And if you change, you know, I'm just watching you. I know you haven't changed for 2,000 years, but you just need to know. Um, but lots would say that's a terrible piece of legislation but on it goes but um, is it really needed I mean is, is Christianity that threatening um, that it needs its Bible monitored I mean just read it it's not going to change but anyway monitoring it does does the Bible does the biblical Christianity does it stir up unrest hatred is it a threat to public order? Well, as I say, that's the question that really looms or dominates this part of the book of Acts, chapters 21 to 28. It's Paul's public defense. As I say, five times you see him on trial. And Luke has recorded these not because he loves legal dramas per se, but Luke has recorded them for us or so that we can see actually from those very origins the Christian faith was accused of being disruptive, but was always completely innocent. And Christians need to be wise and be able to respond similarly to Paul. Okay, just by way of context, uh, immediately before this, chapters 21 to 23, Paul had been in Jerusalem um, just for 12 days, as he says, chiefly to take up a collection, you know, he'd, Took a collection to Jerusalem from uh, uh, the regions, from non Christian, uh, excuse me, from non Jewish Gentile believers. He'd taken that to Jerusalem where they were suffering under famine. So it's aid relief, gift relief. He's brought, that's the main reason he's gone to Jerusalem. Uh, but he's been accused of all sorts of things. A mob attacked him, tried to take his life. Uh, you can see we had read there's all sorts of plots upon his life. It's such a, a disruption that. The, uh, the, the Roman, uh, excuse me, the Roman uh, chief of the army, uh, the centurion, he feels the need to take 470 soldiers to protect Paul from any attempt upon his life. And so they travel from Jerusalem to the port of Caesarea Maratima, which was where uh, the Roman governor was to govern the whole region. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 24. Paul is on trial. So the question over the text is, is Christianity threatening? And chapter 24 would say, well, actually it depends what you mean by that. Two things. It doesn't disturb the peace, but it will turn your life upside down. So publicly, Christianity does not disturb the peace, but personally, it will turn your life upside down. Let's look at the public trial then, first of all. It's really verses 1 to 21, but we'll look mainly at verses 10 to 21. So first then, uh, it doesn't disturb the public peace, this Christian gospel. Uh, Felix says, okay, well, where are all the people accusing this man, Paul? Well, eventually they arrive. Chapter 24, verse 1, five days later, uh, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders, and uh, they've hired in the top barrister in town. They get a lawyer named Tertullus So Tertullus of the Bailey comes, and uh, verses 2 to 4, he gives it a load of old flannel. Uh, That was sort of the sort of cultural thing. You'd you'd flatter the judge uh, to begin with. So Tertullus says, oh, look, Tertullus, we've enjoyed such a long period of peace under you. Your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. I mean, all the historians of the day would say... No, he's the most brutal governor the region had seen. He'd slaughtered lots of people. Uh, but anyway, enough of all that. Uh, a bit of flannel for the judge. But verses 5 to 6 come the accusations. Okay? I think there's three. And we'll, let me highlight them and then we'll see how Paul responds. Three accusations. Verse 5. Here's the first. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Secondly, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He's a nutter a cult leader. Thirdly, he even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. Well, you let a mob seize him and try to kill him. Those are the three: he's a troublemaker, he's a cult leader, and he's uh desecrated the temple and You can examine all these things. And verse 9, behind uh, uh, Tertullus of the Bailey, all the others go, oh, yes, it's definitely true, he's a terrible man, he's a terrible man, verse 9. And then you get Paul's response in verse 10. So he follows the convention of the day, he gives it a little bit of flannel as well. Oh, yes, um, great Felix, you've been judge over this nation for many years, yada, yada. Then he replies. So first, then, the accusation of being a troublemaker. He replies in verses 11 to 13. Well, Felix, verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. That's why I went. My accusers didn't find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they're making against me. Okay, Felix. So it was 12 days ago, less than a fortnight ago. And where are their witnesses? I mean, where are they? They've got no one. It's just a load of twaddle they've made up. Let's spend longer on the second comment, because he spends longer here. Verse um, 14 downwards. The accusation that he's just part of a silly cult. Verse 14. However, I admit or confess. What do you confess? I confess that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul says, you yeah, look, I'm accused of being a sect or a cult. I'm right in the mainstream. I believe in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. I believe everything in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I'm mainstream. In fact, I could put it in these terms. I believe the Old Testament, says Paul. I believe Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant would die for the sins of many. They don't. I believe Psalm 16, that God's chosen one would die, but would not see decay. He'd rise again. They don't. I believe... Go on and on on, Psalm 118, uh, that God's Messiah would be rejected by the Jewish people, but then would become the cornerstone. Well, they don't. Uh, So I'm mainstream. They're the ones who have just lost track of what even the Old Testament says. Why am I called the sect? Why am I the cult? Just believe the Bible, says Paul. Now, at that point, I think that is quite contemporary in in the ring it has to it. Because I think it's extraordinary, really, that Bible-believing Christianity, just as we would subscribe to here, is now described as fundamentalist. i mean, just speaking personally, by, by some in the Dear Church of England, I've been called a theological Nazi, or someone a Nazi, you know there must be the bad guys. Uh, a few years ago, the, um, uh, the Times newspaper, it ran an article about uh, Oak Hill Theological College. Well, I have to say four of our staff trained, but uh, it said Oak Hill Theological College is, quote, producing fundamentalist clergy clones for evangelical churches in the UK. Wow. See, if you observed that I'm wearing a navy suit and Scott is wearing a navy suit, now you know why. Because you have to do that if you become a, a clergy clone. If you get confused between the young, handsome Irishman and me, it's because we're all clones of, uh, of one another. I mean, ow. Ouch. And yet at the same time, I would want to say to those who... Uh, I guess, uh, liberal Christians. Hold on a minute. But I believe in the entire Bible. I believe all of the Old Testament. I believe that's all true. You don't. I still believe in Isaiah 53. We will sing, yes, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You don't believe that. We would believe in a physical, bodily resurrection of those who trust in Jesus Christ. You don't. believe some sort of nebulous spiritual sense God has risen in your heart is true of... Hold on a minute. Why are we the fundamentalists? We just believe the same thing that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. You've drifted away and you call us the sect. It's rubbish. Isn't it striking that Luke records this for us so we know that actually... Year one, not quite. But in the first century of Christianity, Paul, the other apostles, they're being accused of being the sect when they just believe what God has told them by those who have drifted a long, long away, way away from biblical faith. And so Luke would say to you and to me, don't be surprised if people snottily call you fundamentalist culty fringe it's just you're in the mainstream if you believe the bible but that accusation has always come so look i'm not a troublemaker you've got no witnesses to say i did anything it was only two weeks ago you can't produce single witness look, i'm not a cult leader i just believe the bible and thirdly, he just says, look, I didn't desecrate the temple. Verse 17, after absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. That's why I came, to bring this sort of famine relief. And I was ceremonially clean when I went into the temple. There's no sense of desecrating it. I tell you what, uh, verse 20, those who are here should state what crime they've found in me because I've done nothing. But look, verse 21, there is just one thing, the one thing that really gets their goat. verse 21. I shouted as I stood in their presence. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. A bit more about this next week, but four times in this section, chapters 21 to 28, Paul says, the reason I keep being on trial is the resurrection of the dead. Because I'm saying Jesus died, he rose again, he's king over all, and he will judge this whole world, and you need to put yourself right with him. You need to bow the knee to Jesus. And they don't like it. That's why they're upset. They don't like that truth. And so Felix, verse 22, says, What? Uh, oh, there's nothing to try. There's no case here. He adjourns the proceedings. Oh, let's kick it into the long grass. When Lysias comes, I'll, I'll ask his opinion. But overall, here, Lucas recorded this. Paul saying, Look, I trust the Christian message, but I don't disturb the peace. And verse 16, my conscience is clear before God and before man. And if you're a Christian, that should be your testimony as well, that your conscience is clear. Because Christians are not meant to disturb the public peace. Not until the point where we're told to deny Jesus, but that's a long way away in the UK but it's not a threat to the public peace. That's the public trial. But then you get this intriguing, uh, secondly, this intriguing little conversation between uh, Paul and Felix and uh, Felix's wife, Drusilla, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. So the Christian faith, it doesn't disturb the public peace, but it may well turn your life upside down. So Paul is kept under guard, verse 23. uh, Felix says, oh, keep keep Paul under guard. Give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So it's a light touch jail sentence, this. Several days later, verse 24, the governor Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about three things, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, "What's well, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Okay. What has Paul said that means the most powerful man in the region is afraid? Verse 25. I mean, he's a proconsul of the Roman Empire. He's judge and jury. If he says Paul dies, Paul dies unless he does something way out of line that causes Rome to notice and he gets pulled back to the capital of the empire, he can do whatever he wants as governor. Why is he afraid? What has Paul said to him? Well, verse 24, he's spoken about faith in Christ Jesus. So no doubt that's the essentials of faith in Christ Jesus, that if you put your faith in Jesus... You receive the benefits of the great exchange. He takes the penalty for all your sins. And you receive Jesus' perfect righteousness, his relationship with God the Father. And everyone needs that. No doubt he spoke about that. But three things are highlighted in particular. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now I have to say, I think probably here, let's work through them briefly. Righteousness, I think probably in this context is ethical righteousness behavior probably as he's addressing Felix awkward for Felix because he's not a particularly moral man I mean obviously verse 26 he's looking for a bribe from Paul all right so you brought this massive collection of money up to Jerusalem for famine relief you're a man of means okay (laughs) you don't meant to do that I mean again it if he was discovered as a governor in the empire taking bribes, he would be sacked. I mean, it went on, but you never get caught, is the re- He's not a man beyond reproach, certainly in his business dealings. Self-control? Well, Felix is on his third wife now, and Drusilla is on her second husband. The Gossam column, the Gossam The gossip columnists of the day uh, will tell you, as in uh, the historians of the day, Josephus in particular, describes um, Drusilla as one who exceeded all other women in the world in beauty. So she's a looker, Drusilla, clearly. She was married. um, uh, her Her father was Herod Antipas. We've met him in chapter 12. Nasty man, Herod. Who uh, persecuted the church in Jerusalem, chopped the head off James the apostle? Uh, that's uh, his his daughter. Anyway, she'd been married off to the king, uh, a regional king of Emesa. Um, uh, but Josephus records that uh, when Felix saw this staggering beauty, he wanted her, and so got rid of his second wife, and tried to woo Drusilla. Didn't work initially, so by all accounts he hired a magician to put the whatever, willies on her, I don't know, whatever, the mocker's on her, anyway, to trick her, and so she falls in love with him, and uh, so she's on her second marriage, he's on her third marriage. So when Paul speaks about self-control to a man who can't keep his trousers zipped up, that's got a bit of punch to it. And he speaks, lastly, of the judgment to come. Oh, Felix Drusilla, one day, Everyone stands before Jesus and has to give an account for their life. You'd have to say, this is a pretty courageous little speech he gives in private. Here is the man who is judge and jury over Paul's life. And he says to him, you're corrupt. We know this. You don't have a moral righteousness. You lack self-control. Are you going to stand before Jesus as judge? And at that point, we're told, Felix says... Well, he's afraid. There's just something wiggling in his conscience, starting to burrow in. He's afraid. And says, that's enough. That's enough. I don't want to hear any more. So Paul not lacking courage, you'd probably say. And for his speech, well, he's thrown into prison for two years. And uh, we'll pick it up two years later next time. Wow. So Felix, this Christian message is no threat to public order. But it will turn your life upside down because you know you're not living right. And there'd have to be some changes in your life. But Felix, put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you no longer fear the judgment to come because he's taken it for you. When you stand before Jesus, you just have acceptance and vindication. You lack self-control, but he'll change your heart so you can live differently. You're a man who lacks righteousness, but he'll give that to you. He'll work that within you. Felix, why not? What are you afraid of, Felix? Well, it appears he doesn't want his life to change. So for you and for me, to be honest, isn't it? If we keep the Christian faith at arm's length, why would that be? The the accusations you hear against Christian faith, well, not a lot of truth to most of that. Is it because change will be required in your life? At least be honest with that. And then finally, for most of us here who are Christians, I guess you read chapter 24 and we want to be those like Paul who can say, my conscience is clear. There is nothing I've done to disturb the peace. This Christian message is really not a threat to the UK or Scotland uh, that needs some anti-free speech legislation. It really isn't a threat. But this message, it'll change your life. There is a judgment to come. And you want to put your faith in Jesus before that arrives. And it'll change your life for the good, even though you may not want it. (laughs) You'll become the person you were designed to be by the Lord, even though initially you might not be confident that's what you desire. But is Christianity a threat? Not to public order. But as a Christian, your life never stays the same. That's good news. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, thank you that in your wisdom you've recorded these tales in the scriptures because the 21st century looks increasingly a bit like the 1st century as Christianity is viewed as a bad thing, as something which is a disturbance, as something which upsets. But Father, would we be if we're Christians, be those confident that we have done nothing worthy of that accusation. We are the best of citizens, loyal to the state. And yet, would we also, like Paul, be courageous, be willing to warn of a judgment to come, the need for faith in Jesus Christ? That actually, the fact that this will transform your life, that He will transform your life, is a wonderful thing. Father, would we be those sort of Christians we pray in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.